Welcome to Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. I'm obsessed with uh, cult films, with good, bad movies, with obscure films. It just, I just love it. So the movie this week we're talking about is Dubidio. So this movie, Dubidio, I would speak to the director of the movie, which is a great interview, but you'd be surprised who made it and his journey and who he is. And it's just a fascinating story. On YouTube is the first three minutes, and I think it gives you an idea of what the film is like at proudlyresents.com slash Alan Sachs. Here's my interview with Alan Sachs, the director of Dubidio. How are you? Okay, how you doing, man? Are you still working on, you're on tour with Unlocking the Truth? Uh, no, I'm not. Actually, there's a movie that's playing right now that, oh, actually, it opens July 1st at the um, Lemley in, in Santa Monica. It's a movie about the band and me. I'm, I'm featured in the movie. Right. You're also producing the movie? Yeah. But as it turned out, the band's parents didn't think I was doing enough for them. I made them um, probably a million dollars in the first year. I know, I was say, the Sony deal is huge, right? Yeah, and they, and so the band's parents thought they could do better without me, so they ungraciously released me from my contract with nobody even calling me. It was really, it, it, was, it was very sad. It was a very sad experience. You know, the, the kids were like, you know, family to me. Right. But it just wasn't respected. So, you know what? Say la vie, on to the next thing. So to answer that question, no, I'm not on tour with them. Good. Screw them. They're off. But fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But I, I've, you know, you know, it, it just, uh, it was, um, it was crazy. I didn't, nobody even, nobody even thought to call me. What do you mean? Like one day you show up at the bus and there's no bus? No, one, one day I called the producer. First of all, they, ne- they never got as far as having a bus, okay. but I got to, I called the music producer about arranging something for the boys in Detroit, the guy who produced their first album. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, they're, all, they're already here. Where are you? They went to the producer that I introduced them to without even telling me. So wow. it was the producer, Johnny Kay, who told me that the boys were there. And so um, I, I had called um, my partner at the time, Kevin Jonas, who was um, working with me on, on this project. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, they, um, the attorney called and said they took a, 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 a vote and it was a unanimous vote and they no longer want you on the management team. I said, you got to be fucking kidding me. And that was it. So anyway, I got them a book deal. I got them a movie deal. I got them a record deal. What else can I get? I got them a merch deal. Um, I got them um, Bonnaroo. You know, I supervised them on Coachella. I got them, you know, uh, amazing television exposure, Fallon, Steve Colbert. I mean, I, I can't even tell you what, what I did for them. And nobody thought to even call me to say, hey, Alan, we're really sorry. This didn't work out. So you know what? Fuck them. Exactly. Is this the first band that you've ever managed? Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. What would you have done differently? Nothing. Nothing. I would have, 
I, I, you know what I would have done differently? I made the mistake of talking to three sets of parents. They're all, they're not brothers. So three different sets of parents every day. So I brought them into the procedure and I was totally, you know, inclusive of them. And I gave them too much asset to, to what I was doing. So they can do it on their own. You mean they thought they can, they can't, nothing has happened for the band. They were supposed to play the Troubadour tonight. They canceled the show. What do you think? I think they didn't sell tickets. Oh, right. Right. So the greed. So they, they backed out of it. They're also, you know, doing something for BET, but it's a very minor thing before the awards they're playing. uh, They're playing in, um, I think at the Staples Center. I don't know. I don't know. They might be backing a band, but to back out of a show at the Troubadour, which is your album release show, is, I think, a tactical career mistake. Even if nobody shows up? You could have gotten people to show up. Right. You could have promoted it and made it show up. Or you buy the tickets. So, I mean, I, I just, um, whatever, you know, the, um, uh, it was, um, you know, it was a sad situation. You know, I worked with bands a lot. I launched the career of the Jonas Brothers. I launched the career of Demi Lovato. You know, I, I work with talent extremely well. I launched Travolta's career, you know, and, um, and that's what I was doing for Unlocking the Truth. Uh, and how did it work with Travolta? How did you hook up, meet up with him? A casting director brought him into my office, and it was, like, you know, amazing. He was the exact vision that I had for that character, Vinny Barbarino. Gabe was in my office. We looked at each other and said, this is our guy. And we did a, you know, we did a, a screen test of him, but he was amazing. Right. You, you co-created the sh- Welcome Back, Carter. Did you know Yeah, that- with Gabe. And you knew this guy was this huge talent that he was or that he was just perfect for your part? I saw a charisma. Gabe saw it too that he had a certain charisma that was going to work. And we were validated by that in, um, in the, the um, taping of the pilot. Um, when you um, tape before a studio audience, you introduce the cast. And when Travolta was introduced, he ran out and made like a move, you know, one of his like dance moves, you know, hand in the air kind of thing. And um, the audience went crazy. And he was an unknown. Nobody knew who he was. And so we all looked at each other. We looked at the, you know, the executive producer, Gabe, and I looked at each other. We looked at the writer we worked with, and we said, holy shit, this is, this is going to be something. And it was. And then it's like, you know, the, uh, it's like Zen and the Art of Archery. I saw a vacuum for a school show. And there were none on the air, and I always loved school shows. And um, went after that, shot the arrow at the target, and the arrow took its own course, its own path, and it hit the target. So Travolta, the casting director, who brought him in, Lynn Stormaster brought him in, was right on. So Travolta's there. Pitched the idea to Eisner. Eisner saw it right away and put the script in development. John Sebastian, who was a buddy of mine, 
was staying in my guest house. I said, hey, John, do me a favor. Um, write a song for this pilot that I'm producing for ABC. And um, he um, went into the um, um, guest house, came back an hour later with welcome back. You know, it was all coming together. It was amazing. No, he wrote welcome back. And that was was that based on uh, your life growing up as a sweat hog or as in the no, schools? it was based on um, my experience in Brooklyn. I mean, I don't think I was necessarily a sweat hog. Um, Gabe had a lot of characters like that in his act, some similar characters. And when Freddie Prince brought me down to the comedy store to see Gabe perform, um, I said, wow, this guy's doing the same, talking about the same kids I'm writing about in my office. And we got together the next day and we said, let's do a show together. And I said, well, how are we going to get you in the show? And then I thought for a minute and I said, you should be that teacher. And so we went off, we wrote a presentation and that, that's, you know, that's how that started. Um, but, you know, did I know the kids? I knew the kids. Vinny Barbarino was a kid that I knew, I grew up with. I mean, it was definitely, uh, that's, that's Travolta. As a kid that... Which one was you? They, none of them, really. You know, if anything, all of them, you know? Uh-huh. I was the essence of all of them. And uh, Epstein? There's no Puerto Rican Jew where you grew up? There was no Puerto Rican <laughs> Jew at all. And in fact, I thought, where are you from? Uh, New Jersey. My dad grew up in the Bronx. Uh, I know that. Okay. So I thought that... That was Eisner's idea when I pitched it to him. He said, let's make Epstein a Puerto Rican Jew. We had him just as like a, a tough Jew, which is like an anomaly. But we <laughs> had, there. I had him as a... What? There's a couple of us tough Jews around. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but Eisner said, let's make him half Puerto Rican and half Jewish. And I, I said, well, I, I don't think I really dig this idea. But you know what? I did it. And it was a great idea. Eisner's, Eisner's intuition was fantastic. And uh, he was head of programming at the time, Michael Eisner. So he was head of programming at ABC. And his intuition was great. And we got a lot of mileage in the scripts of making him half Puerto Rican and half Jewish. The irony of this is that years later, my cousin, uh, Merrill, winds up being married to a guy named Joey Gonzalez, who's Puerto Rican. So her kids are half Puerto Rican and half Jewish. And those are like my second cousins, a group of half Puerto Rican, half Jewish kids. You know, so I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, you know what, what, what made him think of Puerto Rican Jew, where that came from? Or that was just uh... I have no, I have no idea. It just came out of his mouth. What about the other characters? Did that, um, was that all based? The uh, Horshack was um, based on, a, you know, he's the typical nerd. I had a character like that. Gabe had a character like that in his act. You know, it's that nerdy, nerdy kid in your act. African-American kid was like, you know, I remember the African-American kids that went to my school. Kind of like bebop kids. Vinnie Barbarino, as I said, was um, based on a character that I knew. Tough Italian kid. But there was, um, Sammy the Bull was in my high school, in my elementary school. Wow. And, you know who Sammy the Bull is? Yeah, yeah. Was he tough back then? Yeah. 
So there was a lot of that in, you know, in Barbarino. In fact, the guy that I really visualized as Barbarino was a guy named Joey Colucci. He's really handsome, um, charismatic Italian kid, a lot of fun. He was actually the first guy that was whacked by Sammy the Bull years later. Wow. And that was my inspiration. Take a look at the true Hollywood story. I watched that. It was it was amazing because uh, what happened with you guys and also the fact that they can make a documentary about your show without showing a scene from your show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty amazing. They, they, they played the music. They played the music. That must have cost them a fortune. Yeah, what ha- so it talks a lot about kind of the same unfortunate situation, and we won't keep revisiting it, but about you leaving the show and, and Gabe Kaplan leaving the show. Yeah, well, that's, you know, we don't have to go through that. But, Good. yeah, but, it, it, you know, that wasn't, um, it was a different situation. It's the fucking nature of the business. But go see the movie that um, we just did on Unlocking the Truth. It's called Breaking a Monster. It's playing at the Lemley next week. Sure, it's yeah. movie. The- I'm happy about it. And you're also a producer. Were you able to uh, have any influence on the film? A lot of it. A lot of it. Because I was able to, when the camera, because I was, and I'm a writer and a producer, I was able to see what the camera was getting. Mm-hmm. So in the back of my head, I always knew what scenes were going to work when the camera was in my house or in my apartment right? or when I was interacting with the, with the kids. I knew what was going to work. So it was almost as if I were pre-writing the interviews. So how did you get involved in TV from Brooklyn to, uh, I guess Chico and the Man was your first thing? Yeah, but I I had gotten a uh, master's degree at uh, Brooklyn College in broadcasting, and I got an internship at ABC, wound up in the research department, then wound up in the programming department, and kind of worked my way up the up, up the ladder. Until uh, so I dropped out and became a punk. Yeah, you know, after being a successful TV producer, you joined the punk scene. How old were you at that time? Well, when I was a producer, I was the youngest TV producer around at the time. I think I was about 27 when I was running those shows, Chico and, uh, and welcome back. And then I produced a string of, um, TV movies. I probably did about, you know, 25 of them. It was always a challenge for me to find new work. So, um, I've always been attracted to the music scene and the LA punk underground. It was very, very appealing to me. And so um, some guys came to me to finish this Joan Jett footage. I'm jumping ahead, but I was doing videos at the Club Lingerie. That's, that's what I was doing. I was doing, you know, videos of the local L.A. punk bands. And I was trying to do a show. I was trying to do a TV show from the Club Lingerie, which was the premier club at the time of that scene. And where was that in Hollywood, or was it on the West Side? Yeah, it was on Hollywood. It was on Sunset Boulevard near um, near Kawanga. It was a great club. Who were some of the bands that came out of that, or that you worked with? Well, there were um, Elements of X. There was the um, band called the Knitters. The Chili Peppers I worked with. They came out of that. The Peppers um, actually starred in my next movie, which was well, we're featured in my next movie called Thrashing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a punk skateboarding film which is also a lot of fun. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That, that was a great experience. So I was doing stuff out of the Club Lingerie, and um, there was a band called Tex and the Horseheads, um, and they were they were they wound up in the video. 
Tex, Texacala Jones, she was one of the, the women in bed with Shockey in the, in the dream sequence. And then there was, um, uh, Jahan went, she came out of the lingerie. She did a great piece of performance art called boxing with knives. And then Dirk scratch, who was the editor. He was, he was from fear. And then social distortion did a lot of the soundtrack and they were on that scene. Circle jerks. We were in, um, the other movie thrash and I used their, their, the song that they did wild in the streets. But ironically, one of my really close friends that I grew up with wrote Wild in the Streets and did the original version of that. That's Garland Jeffries. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a great performer. He's in, he's in New York. And so that was his song. The Circle Jerks did a punk version of it, and I used their version. It was obviously a sweet spot for me because Garland, because I knew the streets that he was singing about. So that that's, um, was there. Who else was there? A kid named Zachary was the kid in the, the singing telegram in the movie. He was at the club lingerie. Uh-huh. I think the, I don't think Guns N' Roses ever played there. But then there was an after hours club at that time called the Zero Club. And you would go in there. It was like the third world. Was it down in the basement or? Well, there were about six different variations. It was on the second floor above like, um, one of those lingerie stores on Hollywood Boulevard, uh-huh. corner of Hollywood and Wilcox, right? Where um, they had that mural of all those Hollywood characters. Mm-hmm. It was on the second floor of that, and everybody would go there after the clubs closed. Then Chucky e. Weiss came out of there. He was in the movie Spider Middleman, who since passed away. A lot of people have passed away in that in that movie. It's very sad. And I go down the number of people they're, they're gone. Like El Duce is gone. Can you tell me about El Duce? Who was he in the scene and who was he to you? Because he is a big part, I, th- I feel like, in that film is, you know, besides Ray Sharkey, of course, and you. Yeah, well, El was, um, he did a lot of the, um, the voiceover with me. He was bigger than life. He was like, he was a scary cat, you know? Uh-huh. And he was a big part of it. I mean, he was a very creative guy. As, as fucked up and as misogynistic as he was, he had some really great creative ideas. I mean, one of the things he told me, I'll never forget this, is um, he had some footage of of great car crashes, like real footage, and he said, we should string those together and try to sell a reality show. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's like, it's like car chases on TV. I mean, he, he knew, he had intuitively, as whacked out as he was, he had some pretty decent ideas. He was like a little bit ahead of the um, trend in reality programming, unscripted. You could have made a ton of money if he just used that. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it could have been. I don't know. What was your reaction? Like, there's no way people are going to do that? No, you know what? I thought it was interesting. I thought it was really an interesting concept, but I got sidetracked and never pursued it. So let's talk about Dubidio. So how does that film come about? She says these people had the, the footage of Joan Jett and the Runaways. Yeah. So they had this footage of uh, Joan Jett and the Runaways. Although I don't think it was the original lineup of the Runaways. I thought there were a couple of actresses in there. It, the film wasn't complete. What was the film? It was called We're All Crazy Now. Uh-huh. I think it. I think they had about 40 minutes of shot film that I really didn't dig at all. 
and they came to me wanting me to complete the film. And I said, well, what the fuck? I'll do this. It was going to be a, a good break for me from doing network programming. I wouldn't have to answer to anybody. I could do it my way. Mm-hmm. I wasn't making really any money on it, but, but they were giving me the cash to, to make this movie. So I said, I'm going to go for that. And so I thought that, how can I complete this film? And I should maybe do it about me as a character completing the film. So while I was doing this club lingerie stuff and in a video editing room, I thought, well, what if I was doing this Joan Jett stuff? And the character DeBidio was me as a video as a as a videographer. And in fact, that was my punk name, DeBidio. Oh, okay. And it was tattooed on my arm before the movie. So, I, in fact, when I was in the editing room one day, Zachary came in to look at some of the footage. And he said, you're DeBidio. I said, what the fuck does that mean? So that should be your name. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, DeBidio, DeBidio, of Beat Video. Like, give it like a French, you know, <laughs> spin to it. And it was spelled incorrectly. But, and so I said, I like that. So I made it official like the next day. I went out and got a tattoo just around where, you know, my watch is. So there'd be no mistaking that I, I, this is pre-tattoos, right? This was like a commitment to having a tattoo, you know, where I couldn't hide it. And it was like dropping out. And I did it. You know, I couldn't go into the network with tattoos all over my arm. It was, it was like, would be unheard of. Right. I couldn't get money to do something responsibly if that was me. But I did it. I said, fuck this. You know, I'll, I'll go and do it. And that's what happened. I, I since had laser removed. That was the essence of, of how that character happened. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. I know that, you know, you called me to do, I don't even know what your blog is. You know, your, your podcast is. By the way, you might want to listen to another podcast that I was on. Um, it's called The Mystery Show. Uh-huh. The episode is The Lunchbox. It's produced by the people that do This American Life. And it was one of the highest podcasts of last year. You might listen to that. I, I, I thought it was really great. Wait, you did an, another podcast before mine? This is insulting. I cannot believe this. Yeah, well, what the hell? Come on. I swear to God, I've been looking for, so this is a podcast called Proudly Resents and we've been doing it, I've been doing it for about four years talking about cult movies and I've been looking for you for about, from the beginning, like you were one of the interviews I've always wanted to do. I found this movie at this video store that had, it wasn't like Kim's video in New York, it was just a video store in New Jersey where the guy got bullied into getting weird films, I think. Uh, So I, I rented your film so many times and watched it a million times. I love it. I love it. So it's so great. There, there's a store in Santa Monica called Vidiots. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. It's the last video store, if it's still there. Yeah, they had that film, you know, like from 84, 85. And it's crazy because 
they happened to have just called me about the same week you did because they no longer have a copy of it and wanted a copy of it. And so I'm getting them a copy of the film. They've always loved the film too. And you know, there's always something that happens about that film as crazy as it is. There isn't a month or even a couple of weeks that goes by that somebody doesn't contact me regarding that, which I love. I think it's great. Um, it's great because it's so impossible to find now. Yeah. There's one copy for $90. On, I don't know if that's you selling that on Amazon. No, it's not me. <laughs> that would be a, a good second career yeah. for you. It would be funny to do. And now that you have the time because you're not working with the band anymore. So what made you... Well, I just, I just, I'm, I'm writing a memoir, so uh, that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, it's amazing. What made you get rid of the tattoo? Well, it wasn't the time that tattoos were acceptable. And they it looked like jailhouse. Yeah, right. It looked like, you know, the it was done by the Aryan Brotherhood while I was at um, Cochrane State Penitentiary. So, so I figured I'd, I'd cool back on that. I, I did go through my mind as a teenager to get that tattoo on my arm. Like when I was going through what tattoo I would get. Really? Yeah, yeah, I was going to get that. And maybe, <laughs> go for it, bro. And then even the face. Where did that drawing come from of the, the screaming guy when DeVito gets hit? That's on the box. Oh, that's Gary Panther. That was, um, actually, it was in Raw Magazine, I think. So you get the footage and you decide it's going to be about yourself. How do you get Ray Sharkey? Was he part of the punk, punk scene at the time? He was a close friend. And he was, um, he, he, he had, you know, he, Ray had some up and down problems, sadly. Um, and um, he was out of work. He had done like a lot of great stuff. He'd done the item maker. He'd done some series for um, Steve Canal, and um, he said, "Okay, I'll you know I'll do this." And so it was great. So I got Ray to do it, um, and um, and he blended in beautifully to the punk scene. <laughs> it was like it was a match made in heaven. So he wasn't in the scene because I totally thought, "Wow, Ray Sharkey was in the punk scene." No, but he, he I brought him into it. Oh, so he stayed in there. He was there. He was at the line. He, yeah, he he got in it. He wasn't like the others, you know, but he was there. Ray could go anywhere, you know. He was like, he was part of it. Yeah, what was he like as a guy since you knew him so well? Very, very sweet guy. Very sweet guy that um, sadly got mixed up with some, you know, drugs. Right. Very sad. He died, you know, way, way too young. Great actor, great actor, great actor. Right, he just done that uh, Wise Guy show, and that was... Yeah, that's what I, that was, I think that was the Canal show. Oh, okay. Where did you guys shoot the, the film? Where was the studio? So, Gomillion was a post-production facility that was on McCadden Place in, in Hollywood. You know, like, down the street from, you know, the Hustlers on Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh-huh. And so it was a post-production facility. And the guys who shot this film originally had some kind of deal with Gomillion. I don't know what the fuck it was. Where maybe they loaned him some money. I don't know. I don't know. But he gave them carte blanche, the key to his place. The post-production facility office space for the production 
a, a small soundstage to shoot the film. So it was like a one-stop shop. And so we did that. I brought in every freak in Hollywood, you know, marginal, on the marginal side of Hollywood into that facility to do the film. It was crazy. And I was the adult supervision. And how was it having them in the film? How did that... Uh... Well, I loved them. I loved these people. You know, I was very close to them. Still am close to a lot of them. You know, sort of, it was a little bit of a family. I mean, at one point, I wasn't making any bread, having created some, you know, great TV and and produced, you know, so many movies. Uh, I wasn't able to pay my rent. They did a benefit for me at the music machine. Alan Sachs, you know, pay his rent concert. Oh, that's crazy. I've been up and down, up and down a lot. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, I had a a very um, up and down career. Fortunately, I'm still doing it. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing Disney movies. Yeah, how did you move into Disney films? Um, My wife had... um, gave me an idea to do a movie about smart house. And, um, and I took it to Disney and they put it in development. And as a result of that, I did five, 10 more, uh, about eight more movies. Wow. What is smart house? It's about a computerized house that goes haywire. Starred Katie Segal. You know, Katie? Sure. She, she actually came out of the punk scene too, but, um, she played the house. It was a great film. Really great. And so what was the punk scene like? What was it? Was it just a lingerie? Was it a couple clubs? Was it every night did you go oh, out? It was, the, it was the Zero Club. As I said, that was the After Hours Club. Uh-huh. It was the, for me, it was the Club Lingerie. But then on the west side, there was the music. There was the music machine. There was downtown. We used to go to uh, the Hong Kong Cafe. And uh, Madame Wang's. Uh-huh. Those were both in Chinatown. A lot of the bands played there. The Cafe de Grand, which was in Hollywood. There was a club called Raji's on Hollywood Boulevard. And then there were um, there were bars. There was the Firefly on Vine Street. And the Frolic Room, still there next to the Pantages. There's a club a little closer to Koreatown called the Anti-Club. It's down on Fountain. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, would go from club to club. So you would go in and you would know everybody. So it was a very familial environment. And a lot of drinking, a lot of, a lot of dope. Right. That was, that was part of it. Yeah, of course. Were you a musician at the time or you were just somebody who was part of the scene? No, I always liked music, though. You know, I was always, you know, I started out as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, going to the Alan Freed rock and roll shows. Mm -hmm. In my first concert, I saw Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper were the first concert I saw. (laughs) They died on on that tour. So I was there at the birth of rock and roll. You know, I think I was 10 or 11 years old. I was at the um, Lowe's Oriental in Brooklyn with all my friends who turned out to be the sweat hogs watching blackboard jungle, which was a movie about school in, in Brooklyn and in a day. It was like in a city. It was integrated. They didn't call it in a city then. Right. 
Right, but right. There was, it was, and, and that movie opened up, and we were there, and it opened up with the score. It was rock around the clock, and there was the downbeat of one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock, and this was the first time ever that kids of my generation heard rock and roll music coming over speakers bigger than a transistor radio. We never heard music like this before. Uh-huh. And we went fucking crazy. We started rioting. We were ripping the theater apart. They had to close it. They had to stop it. To me, that was the birth of rock and roll. And ironically, I don't know if you watched the show um, Vinyl on HBO, but the lead character, I think his name is Ricky Finestra, it's played by Robert Cavalli. He described that exact moment in the show and how that was the birth of rock and roll for him. And that was like everybody, if you could look it up, every kid of my generation saw Rock Around the Clock and all of us went completely fucking nuts. It changed the dynamic of, of music and what we were emulating. The other films that same summer were uh, a little before that was um, The Wild One. So we got into Black Leather Jackets. Right. And then Rebel Without a Cause the same summer was James Dean wearing the engineer boots and the, you know, and the um, Levi's, with cuffed Levi's. And that those are our, our influences. But for me, primarily, rock around the clock. So that was my interest in music right then and there. As a kid, I was going to the rock and roll shows and um, dancing on Alan Freed after school. I would go and do that. You know, the Alan Freed rock and roll show on TV. You were on the show as a dancer? Yeah, I would go on. You know, anybody could. It wasn't special. I was like an audience kid that would go there and dance on the show. So I would, yeah, I would dance on the show. I'd love to find some of that footage. Yeah, it's got to be around <laughs> somewhere. That's amazing. I don't know. I, I got to think about that. I got to. But, uh, but that's, you know, that was my interest, how I got involved. And then from there, um, my projects always were about music in a way. While I was um, interested in the music, I was always. Um, motivated by it. So if I was doing Welcome Back, Carter, the music of the show, John Sebastian singing Welcome Back, was very important to me. I also had Dion from Dion and the Belmonts do one of the theme songs. We didn't hire Dion, but we went with we went with John. So that was something that, you know, had intrigued me. So that was, you know, music was always my thing. What was it about punk that gave you, did it give you the same feeling that Rock Around the Clock did? What was it about punk that you loved? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, no fucking future. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do it my way. That was what punk was. And it's interesting. In, in my memoir, I, I write that I was interested. I knew Leary. I was going to lectures of Leary's down at the Lower East Side at the Fillmore where he was talking about turn on, tune in, drop out. But I didn't. I didn't drop out. 
I didn't drop out for the hippie scene. I loved the hippies. I was part of it. I was right there at the very beginning. I was always at the beginning of, of new cultures. I was in the beginning of, you know, I wasn't at the beginning of the beats because I was too young, but I would go to the village to look up to the beats, emulate them. And then the hippie thing happened and I was there hanging around, you know, St. Mark's place in the village, the East Village, but I didn't drop out. I was an executive. I stayed, you know, I stayed true to that path that I was on. But when it came time for the punks, I took a two-year sabbatical and became a hardcore punk. So I dropped out for the punks. I didn't drop out for the hippies. Right. What was it about the punks that you loved so much that uh, made it worthwhile? The, you know, the anarchistic attitude of it. I was, you know, I was very nihilistic. You know, my, my dad had passed away at the time. And maybe that moved me along in that direction. I was, you know, uh, I liked to drink, you know, I liked <laughs> weed, you know, I just, but, but, that, you know, that wasn't it. Um, the freedom of it, which by the way, cost me a couple of years in terms of what I could be doing. If I stayed true on my path, I would have been president of a network or a production company, but I didn't. Is that and, something you wanted? No, no. And I don't regret it. I don't regret it. I regretted sometimes having a hard time getting things sold, but I've always managed to continue to work within the system and to do that and still do. That was my, you know, path as well as, I don't know if I mentioned or if you read anything that, you know, I may, um, I've been a practicing Buddhist for um, probably over 40 years. How has that influenced you in, in show business and in the punk scene? Well, you know, Buddhism, um, and it's just going deep with inside yourself. It's being true to yourself. Um, it's the way I deal with people you know, learning the concept of compassion, you know, that, that's more than I want to go into at this moment. But other than rest assured, I, I sat doing my meditation for, you know, a half hour this morning and I do that every day. Okay, we can move on. What, what was the reaction to the punks to an executive, or the guy who created this huge mainstream show coming into the scene? They liked it. They thought I was going to be a path for them to, to, take the punk into the mainstream. Uh-huh. And it was what they wanted, the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. They would, they would, they were punk was show business. Uh-huh. Punk was, they were all in entertainment. They were all singing. They were all, they were dancing. They, they had, they were artists. I wasn't the only one, but I was one of their, their, um, what do you call it? Like a scout. I could lead them into the a mainstream world. They were very supportive of that. Oh, that's great. And then, so was the BDO people's like, oh, this is going to be our big mainstream in? Was that? Maybe, I but it was so fucked up. People, you know, <laughs> people looked and said, what the fuck is this? You know, it was, you know, it was probably coming off a nervous breakdown. <laughs> My own. I toured with the film, went to a lot of film festivals. It got accepted 
in Filmex, which was like the LA film festival here. And once that happened, it got accepted mm -hmm. in film festivals around the country, around the world. I was at the Munich Film Festival. I was at the Cannes Film Festival. I was at a festival in uh, Amsterdam. And one of the things I was um, at Munich Festival, where, by the way, the film played in a town called Tübingen. It played for like two years late night. You know, it was like a, a real popular film. So I'm sitting there in the BMW screening room in Munich, you know, where they were screening it at the festival. And there were, you know, 500 people watching it. And during some of the scene, I don't remember which scene it was. There were kids in front of me, punks, that are burning themselves with cigarettes. I said, holy shit, this film is like really motivating them. And when you're watching it, you can't sit still. And by the way, my concept, I made this movie pre-digital editing. There was no digital editing. So we had to edit this thing by hand for over a year and a half. I went to the screening room every day, the editing room every day, and sat there with the editor that I was getting them crazy. Just like DiBidio was getting his editor crazy, that's what I was doing with my editor, Joe Zabala. He was, he was like so burnt out. I would come in, I would bounce in at one o'clock in the afternoon every day, get ready to go for the day and uh, end the day by going to the lingerie, get there before it closed for a couple of drinks and then start the same thing the next day again. There's a lot of like quick cuts and edit. Right. There's a lot of things that people use now, which is pretty awesome. Where did that part come from? It came from me inherently, man. I just thought, I said, if you could, if we could put a lot of things into that movie and just go bam, 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 and subliminally even shock people, that would work. So I just loaded it with everything I loaded it with. And part of the thing, what happened was it came out short. They hired me. These guys hired me to make a movie. And I brought it in because they didn't, they didn't have it complete. And now I'm fixing it. And I'm short. I'm doing the same thing. So I have to make it complete. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get, and I ran out of money. They weren't going to give me any more money. And I said, and I, I said, they said they wanted a movie with break dancing. And I said, you know, fuck it. I don't want to, these guys aren't paying me. They paid me in one lithograph, right? In a lithograph um, that was a John Lennon, one of the bag pictures. And as it turned out, it was a fucking forgery because my wife and I went to try to sell it. And when they took the back off the picture, yeah. they saw it was a forgery. So I got paid in a John Lennon forgery, which I loved. <laughs> that's fucking ridiculous. And so, um, <laughs> anyway, that's, you know, that's that. Who were, was it? Was it mob? I mean, it's a mob in the movie, but is it the mob in real life? It, it was, I'm not going to say it was the mob. I'm going to say, you know, as much as, you know, the character in the movie was connected, you know, these guys probably shouldn't have fucked around with them. Was there any consequences, consequence to DiBidio in the film? No, no, no. So what no. kept you going with this film after there was no money? I wanted to complete it. I thought it was, I thought it was a statement. And so what I did was I went out, I shot it. 
I got stills. I got I got stills from this guy Ed Culver, who shot the punk scene, and I was introduced to him by um, George DiCaprio, Leonardo's dad, and um, I got um, other footage that I that I licensed, like that mentor stuff. El Duce told me about that, and I got you know this Gary Panther, you know that stuff. George told me about that. I was finding, I wanted to find the most extreme stuff I could find. I told my AP, I said, find me stock footage that is so fucking crazy. And so he found that stuff, you know, where the, the head gets blown off. That's real execution footage. Wow. Yeah. That was like real, man. And what was your point in, in having that in the film? I just wanted to shock people. Uh-huh. And so if I had the footage, if I found the footage, I would figure out a way to make it work organically the way I can put it in the film. So for instance, Ray is holding the gun on Durf on, on his editor. The BDO is holding the gun on his editor. So the editor for a quick second flashes that the gun is going to go off. So we could have that footage cut in subliminally and see the head be blown up, you know, then go back to it and have the BDO laughing crazy. And it worked. Yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, my one of my favorites. So how much under was the film? Under? You said you gave a movie that was under. How much oh, did you under, have to... Under, under in time? Yeah, yeah. I probably had to fill in 10, 15 minutes. I don't know. And what did you use? Well, I used I used those still shots. Uh-huh. I used that stock footage. I used the, the still shots of the punk underground i you know the the boots the tattoo montage i just thought the el duce footage i just started building it up a montage in the way i was like uh, they use a word today what is it um, um when you um look for things like you're in a museum you curated um curated right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I curate. I curated insane shit. <laughs> they they don't use that today, but I, I they didn't use that then. But I, I was curating that movie. So to show everybody the punk scene and yeah, yeah, to show everybody how crazy it was. Uh, that's amazing. And so you, you'd show the movie. What happened? What was their reaction when they saw the finished film? Who's the the financiers? They didn't know what to think. They saw it in the south of France. They had no fucking idea what I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> they could hardly they could hardly speak. <laughs> <laughs> they could hardly speak, but but my friends loved it. <laughs> what kind of distribution? How did that happen? What happens next with it? The had, film? You know, it had very very bad distribution. It um, I got Hemdale to take the rights for foreign. There's a friend of mine, a great company. John saw, John saw the potential in it. It never really had a theatrical lit release. Sad thing, but you know, say la vie. Well, the video release. I mean, I think it's just just because people, I think like me, they found they thought they found this film, so it becomes their yeah, film. Yeah, I think Fox Hills Video. I think it says on the box. Yeah, yeah. I think they picked it up in in a film festival somewhere. And, um, and there was a, a release in Japan, 
which I love, by the way, the Japanese release uh-huh. is in subtitles. So everything said is in English and under it, there's Japanese subtitles running throughout the film. It adds a whole other dimension. Well, you can hear everything you're saying with El Duce. Yeah. And that's all recorded and it's all done. You hear it. And then it's on top of that. It's in, um, kanji subtitles. I think people haven't seen it. One of the cool things about the film, besides all the clips and everything is that you're talking over the whole movie pre DVD commentary. Another thing stolen from you. Exactly. Exactly. Where did that come from? Um, it came from me and it also, um, was in conversations I had with Durf, Durf Scratch. Uh-huh. And so we decided, look, there were holes in the movie. When I finished it, there were still holes. So I'm screening it and people are asking me what's supposed to happen here. So I said, you know what? I got to fill this in. I got to fill in exactly what people are asking me. So Durf, Duce, my sister, a couple of other people, we got around and we watched the movie and we recorded what we were seeing and we did that a couple of times. So we had commentary that was natural. And then I took all of that recording. So it was like, let's say 90 minutes twice. And I went to the editors and I said, now you got to cut this. And now that you've cut in a million shots (laughs) in the movie, now you got to cut it. Now you got to cut in the sound again. And so it was like layer upon layer upon layer. And my idea was just to bombard the senses. Bombard it visually with stuff that's shocking. Johanna Went is, is the most extreme thing I've ever seen on film. It still is. And that was like an amazing performance. And it was art. Her performance was art, man. It was revolutionary. I mean, it was about 20, 30 years ahead of its time. I, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I felt that it was ahead of its time too. You know, and, and it, there, you know, and even in my book, I, I wrote that when I described things in the film, that it was so, the commentary was ahead of its time, and it was commentary that was wedded to the film, and today it's like a DVD commentary. It's just a normal thing, but it wasn't then. It was like truly unique. Even movies on the Disney Channel do it today. They have a running where, you know, kids are commenting on films. I don't think they got it from me, but I'm, I think I'm one of the first that I've ever seen that happen in, in a movie. Right. Especially putting it out in the, like it's locked in the film. Locked in, totally locked. What have you taken from Dubidio that you use in other projects, your after school specials, your Disney films or anything? That's a good question. It's, it's the, um, certainly the music, the, the intensity of the editing, but sort of the verite style, the fast movement. I would really love to get some money and do something like the BDO, you know, with real money. But, you know, we'll see what happens. What scene would it be on? I mean, would it be... I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is there anything like that interesting you now? I mean, obviously you, you hear about these kids and you've, as I say in the trailer, you fly out to 
meet with unlocking the truth. Is there something now that you feel like is the, the cusp that you're on as you're watching? Well, I, I like, um, I like the crust punk scene. I like the train hoppers. I like the kids riding the trains. I don't know what that is. I'm too old. Kids that are, you know, hopping on freight trains and riding cross country. They're doing that now just throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you find out about this? My son does it. Oh, he does. Yeah. That's amazing. How old is your son? 25. So they just, they go out just to see the country for free and jump on trains. Yeah. 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 It sounds like your next film. It could be. Could be. And after the video comes out, what, what did you think was going to happen to this film? And, uh, I thought it was going to have a little more, um, a little more success, but you know what? That was in my naive thinking because it was so fucking extreme. I didn't see that. So I have to, you know, monitor my, um, just put a governor on my thoughts. And what would you have done differently now that you've have all these more years of experience? There, there is, there are things in the video that make me cringe. I don't want to go through the specifics, uh-huh. but um, there are things that really disturb me. Um, so you think you went too far? Uh, in places, yeah. I mean, there are things like in my book that I'm writing that are actually creeping me out. In my own book, I'm saying, holy shit, you know. I, I, I Can you imagine writing a memoir and you're writing about things that you've experienced that you can't even read because they get you they're too creepy. Is there anything you can say? No, I don't want to get into it right now. All right, I had to ask. But uh, yeah, of course. But um, you'll read the book. Yeah, yeah. When, so when when do I find so, the book? I don't know. I gotta I gotta get a publishing deal. You gotta write it. Well, I've written it. Oh, all right. So um, I'm polishing it right now and. I'm working on the proposal and working on it pretty diligently. Oh, Joan Jett obviously didn't like the movie. So she got she got back to you, or how did you hear that her reaction? No, I I, just, I don't remember how I heard it, but she you know she was so not liking it. But. Why is that? Because it wasn't about her anymore. Is that the issue? No, no, I don't I don't know I don't know. Maybe some of Duce's comments, you know. <laughs> right. You know that was probably it. You know. The misogynistic stuff. Hey, so um, I got to get rolling. No, this is um, great. I appreciate it. How do people find you if uh, they want to contact you? You have my information. Right. No, I'm just the audience listening. You on social yeah, media? my email. All right, I'll hand out your you email. Got, yeah, you know, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter. You're a hard guy and to find. Was, and, and you got my email. That's great. And is there something so you want to promote? Where does this, where does this go? It's a podcast. It's been it's on iTunes and Stitcher, and um, we've been going for about four or five years. And so, what do you do? You ed- you edit this now? You edit this? Um, yeah, I'm going to edit this down. What? Not not a lot, right? Uh, you can appreciate that. And then, so we do. We I interview people like yourself who made these kind of movies, and then we also review kind of the crazier films. Uh, okay with the comedians and we talk about those films as well. Like people's guilty pleasure movies as well as talk to like Lloyd Kaufman. I interviewed, um, a couple of years ago. Right. 
it's been a play it's been uh this is an interview i've wanted to do for a long time you're one of the films that uh shaped what i do and uh and as a teenager you know as a kid we watched it a million times so i appreciate that okay appreciate that man very good all right, well, all right thank you very much okay thanks I want to thank Alan Sachs for doing this interview, taking time and being blatantly honest and candid and uh, hilarious. Thanks for listening to the show. You can reach me, uh, reachadamandmac.com, if you have a suggestion for a film or an interview or a comment. I love to hear when people send in their uh, guilty pleasure films. Go to iTunes, rate and review us if you can, subscribe, or I would just go back and listen to old episodes if you're new to the show. Fantastic. I'm going to be at Comic-Con. I would love to see you. Let me know if you're out there. That's it. I'm Adam Spiegelman. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. And Tony, thanks for getting me Alan's phone number. That's all great. Or Alan's email. All right, I got to go get a Dubidio tattoo. See you later. Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.